Hi, you're listening to Eternal Stance. I hope this message inspires you to live in light of eternity. All right. Well, good morning. By the way, I'm not the guy with all the answers. That, that's Jesus. Um, he made it sound like that was the introduction to the sermon, and I don't have all the answers. But I think uh, we got a request about this last week, and the request was, uh, it started out saying, hey, I love this church, but what I'd like to hear more on is I want to hear on holiness and repentance. So today I'm going to talk about holiness, which is, you know how when you bite something more they can chew? Um, That's kind of that kind of topic uh, where I've went through so many studies and so many things, and at the end of the day, you're still like, you feel like you don't fully understand, and I don't think we'll ever understand fully on this side of eternity. However, I think this is my attempt to shed some light biblically on what the Bible says about God's holiness and what does God say about holiness in regards to us. So if you just want to Take a moment and bow your heads. Uh, we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much, God, for this morning, for your presence in this place. I know that you are here. And Father, I know that you are, Father, in this place, working on our hearts. Lord, I pray this morning as we approach this, this amazing topic about who you are. It's, it's so difficult to explain, Lord God, but you've revealed yourself through our scriptures. You've revealed, Father, uh, your true nature. And Father, when we we want to just kind of get closer to that. Lord, we thank you. We ask you right now, Lord, that make sure that I don't make any mistakes. I put everything we have in your hands. And my Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Um, you have your Bibles. You can open to Isaiah chapter 6. This is the famous passage about holiness. Obviously, there's a lot of passages about holiness throughout the Bible. But this one just really stands out. And uh, it's, it's, it's a story uh, about this prophet. His name is Isaiah. And Isaiah has this amazing vision, and um, he says this, in the year the king uh, Uzziah died. So, by the way, if you have different translation, I'm reading from NASB, which is the New American Standard Bible. Um, If you have a different translation, it's totally fine. Um, But Isaiah chapter 1 says this, in the year the king Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphims stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim uh, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with thongs. He touched the mouth with it and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, it's amazing to see that Isaiah has this amazing vision of God sitting on the throne. And it says that the train of his robe filled the temple. So if you ever went to a wedding and you saw the train of uh, a bride, 
right? It's pretty long, but imagine the train of, of, of robe. And now, if you look in the history, we see that kings, they had really big, like, robes that would stretch out. That's supposed to signify, right, their, their, their power, their, their um, dominance. And it says that God's, you know, robe, the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, and as he sees this thing, he sees these angels called seraphims, right? They're flying around and they, each of them have six wings. And with two, they cover their feet. And with two, they cover their eyes. And with two, they fly. And as they fly around, they cry to one another saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, in Jewish literature, uh, you know how we have words such as, you know, bad, good, better, best, right? So, so we use that kind of language to describe to what degree we want to emphasize something. How good is something? Well, it's better, and then this is the best, right? But in the Jewish like, literature, we see that they would, they would emphasize something by repeating it. So, so, so it would be things like, I mean, Jesus himself did this, right? He would say, verily, I, truly, truly, I say unto you. Or amen, amen, I say unto you, right? So the more you repeat something, the more emphasis in, in the, repeating it three times was like the superlative, right? Like holy, holy, holy. Now, I think when we think of God, a lot of times we think of God as being loving, right? That, that, that's the modern day, you know, culture is God is love, you know? God just loves everybody. Now, of course, love is an attribute of God, but the Bible is the only thing or the only kind of character of God, the Bible raises to the third degree, you know, is actually his holiness. Now, what is that? Like, I mean, we've, we've heard the name holy a lot. And normally it's in a bad connotation, right? Like, it's, it's sort of like, oh, you think you're holier than thou? Like, you think you're just, just better than me? Like, you just think you're so holy? So, so I want to spend some time really talking about this word. What, is, what does it mean to be holy? Because guess what? We are called to be holy. I know it's not a, maybe a modern day preaching. Maybe it's not a modern day talk, but the Bible is filled with this. And I want us to maybe do two things today. And one of them is to put in perspective. No, it's really hard to describe God. Because the moment you say God is like, the moment you've just started a heresy. Right? The moment you start to describe, God is unlike anything. Well, we see Moses, right? He, God it charges Mo, Moses with a commission to go and let you know, his people go. And as he comes to God, Moses doesn't really understand who God is and says, okay, well, if you're sending me, like, who are you exactly? God, I, who do I say? You're going to find this in Exodus 3, 13. It says, Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will, sell to, I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say uh, to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am who sends, uh, sends me to you. Now, what Moses is asking here is that, hey, our fathers, a lot of people before us, they came. Some of them served the real God and some of them served different gods. 
So I know I'm dealing here with deity. I know that I'm dealing here with God. But how do I describe you to them? Who are you, God? Now, of course, you know, your name, if you go look it up, you can probably understand, you know, that maybe there's a meaning behind your name. Do you believe that mine vaguely translated some, means something along the lines of glory? So my parents apparently had like big hopes and dreams for me, <laughs> right? But your names, they have meaning behind them. Simon the shoemaker. How do you know it's Simon? Well, because his dad makes shoes and it turns out he makes shoes too. Right, right? Or my last name is Moraro, which people like, how do you even pronounce that? Well, it's Miller. So the guy who makes, you know, right? Like, or in the Russian, I think it's called Melnik, right? Like, so it's, it's a guy that produced, produced flowers. So that's how I end up with my name. Now, I don't really prefer it because it's really hard to pronounce, but that's just kind of how people at that time sort of talked about who they are. So Moses is asking God, who are you? Can you, do, can you describe yourself to me? And God's like, yeah, I am who I am. Well, that is, that's very, very, you know, very detailed, God. Like, how, what does that even mean, I am who I am? What God is saying is, there's no one that I can describe myself by. There's no one like me. There's no way I can put into words who I am. There's no, you can't describe me as like Simon the shoemaker because I'm so much bigger than any of that. And that's what I mean. Like when, when we start to say God is like, um, be careful. God is unlike anything that we've ever seen. For example, do you have anything in your mind that is all powerful? What can you think of that is all powerful? The word for that theologically would be omnipotent, right? Like all powerful. We have no experience with a being that's all powerful unless we're talking about God. How do you describe a being that's all knowing? Omniscient, I think is the word in theological terms. We, we have no experience with someone that is all knowing. We don't have, you know, we don't have a, kind of like a understanding what it's like for a being to be omnipresent. For to be at every single place, every single time. We have no experience. We, we are so limited to our, our spaces. For example, right now we're in this room and I hope you don't think you're at home right now, right? You, you, you were limited by space. We're limited by time. We're limited by so many different limits that are placed on us as human beings, but God doesn't have all that. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. Is God present in hell? Turns out, yeah. He's present there in his wrath. God is present here this morning. So maybe we should stop, you know, say, God, please come here. No, God is here. God is here. Now, we don't have an understanding of a being that is powerful like that, that is all-knowing like that, that is present like that. That's why it's so hard to describe. We don't have uh, an idea how to describe something that is that created the depth of the ocean and the and the atom and the bacteria and at the same time created the galaxies. We have no concept of that. I love how Psalms 86 8 says this: there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. God is unlike anything that we you know, can understand. 
our minds are so calm, like they're so small. Well, when we say things like, well, now my Jesus, my Jesus is not like that. Well, what you've just done is you created Jesus in your own mind. Oh, don't put God in a box. You've seen that weird phrase. Even if you could, you can't. But listen, you can't take all of that. Have you ever tried to wear shoes that are maybe three sizes too small for you? It's not exactly the most pleasant experience. How do you take all that glory, all of that, and, and, and try to comprehend it with a little mind? This is, this is a, a word known in theology as transcendence. God transcends every single thing that we understand, right? Like he is so much bigger than anything that we, we don't have words to describe. We have words like my friend, Alex, you'd always like, you know, exaggerate to the point where he ran out of words to say. So like he would say, it's like a gazillion, bazillion, majillion, like that is how big it is. Because everything was really like, he would have a problem with constantly emphasizing things that shouldn't be emphasized, right? And it got to a point, he ran out of words. When it comes to God, you can describe, okay, well, God exists on 400 million billion galaxies, but actually he lives in eternity, which is more than that. Or anything description you can come up with, I can say, yeah, he's better than that. He's so much bigger than that. God created everything that we see, that we touch, that everything in this world. That is crazy to think about. You think our skyscrapers are big. God created all of that. And then, you know, now, of course, I don't want to overplay my, my hand here, right? And keep on telling you how great God is to the point where you're like, well, how can I possibly ever talk to a being like this? Because that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because you see, when we start talking about how amazing God is, we feel so insignificant. We went and uh, watched stars the stars at night, which was cold, but it was great. Um, was it like Friday night, I think? And just to lay down there and look up and see the stars. You know, like, God, he created all this. He says that the galaxies fit in the span of his, like, his hand. God holds this. I know, of course, that does change the perspective of how you approach it, doesn't it? I think in modern day culture, we look at Jesus and I'm like, oh, buddy, buddy, and God is this. And we start to describe him like in terms that quite frankly are downright blasphemous. How do you approach a being like this? You can't. Because every place we see in the Old Testament of someone trying to approach God, they learn the hard way. Right, we see this, there's at least two of them in, in the Old Testament. Leviticus 10, one says, Now Nidab and Abihu, which are the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on them, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. The, the Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord, has, uh, Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I'll be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept his silent. Think about this. 
a priest serving in the house of God. Think of a pastor serving the house of God, and two of his sons are trying to approach God, but they do it in the wrong way, and fire burns out and destroys them. But God, we're trying to serve here. It says that they brought strange fire. They, they didn't follow instructions. And God kills them on the spot. Now, obviously, Aaron is having a problem with this because that's his two sons. Comes up to Moses. Moses says, this is what God is saying. For those who approach me, they will know that I am holy. We see another one in, in Samuel 6. It says that they, they, in this amazing place where they had to separate God's presence from the people because people are sinful and God is holy and people's sin cannot dwell in his presence because they would die. So they created this, this, this tent of meeting and later on turned out to be the temple, right? And then in this tent of meeting and then the temple, right? There would be called a room called the Holy of Holies. And in this room, God, it was, it was kind of like a, a representation of what, what it's like to be in heaven, right? Like it was a representation of what, what the things are in heaven. And in this room, there was a box made out of wood and covered in gold called the Ark of the Covenant. And nobody was allowed to enter this place because if you entered there without doing the rituals, without going through a, a process of like sort of cleansing before you can enter into his presence, you would die. So only once a year, I, I believe the, 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 the uh, holiday was Yom Kippur, like they would be able to walk into the presence of God where uh, the, the Hebrew word there is the Shekinah glory, where the glory of God would descend upon this holy of holies. And if the priest walked in and he didn't follow the instructions, he would die. Some traditions say that they would actually have, you know, bells. So if the guy is not making any noise, he's dead. Pull him out. They would tie his, his foot uh, but with a rope and pull him right out. Now, this ark somehow gets captured. And after some time there, David's trying to bring the, 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 this ark back. And as, it, first of all, they were supposed to carry this ark only by, by, by hand. And it was only, be, uh, you could only carry it with a particular people, and that, that was the Levites. These are uh, people in the house of Israel that they were given to, into holiness and to serving unto the Lord. And the only people that could touch, and even that, they had to put the poles through the rings and then carry the ark like that. But then when they were bringing the ark back, they didn't follow these instructions. They put the ark on this cart. And as, as this cart is sort of rolling down the road, it starts to kind of like shake a little bit. And this is where we'll pick up in 2 Samuel 6, 6 and says, But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. So meaning that the oxen were, were moving and it was about to fall off, right? So this is this guy, Uzzah, automatically just puts his hand on it to steady it. He wants to do a good thing. And it says, then the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down. Therefore, his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of, the God, of God. Now, David obviously is having a problem with this. But God makes it very clear, clearly that you don't step into my presence just like that. Now, unfortunately, even in our church, we've trivialized that. 
And I hope that maybe this is a call back to understanding who are we worshiping here this every single Sunday morning? Who are we really talking to here? My parents, I knew better. Like, my dad never beat me, but what I can say is that he would just look at me, and I got the whole point. Like, he would just, like, you know, and, like, if I'd cry, he'd be like, stop it. And I, I would just, and, uh, I mean, I appreciate it, <laughs> but, but I knew that I don't talk back to my, uh, I don't talk back to my dad. Because those are a reverence and an awe. But again, we are talking to God here. If there's one thing against, I uh, would have against our modern day how we do church, is we've lost the fear of God. We do not fear God. Beloved, we do not fear God like every single, the way we walk. On one hand, we claim to follow God. We don't have the reverence when we approach him. Now, of course, my whole message this morning is not to get you really depressed about this. Okay, because this is not the point. You see, on one hand, God is transcendent. He is big. He's majestic. He's, he transcends time, places, and, and cultures, and kings. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the God of all gods. And he is all of that. But then also God is imminent. This quality of God, the God is close to us. He's there. He's there in our suffering because you see, here's the hope. The hope is that even though there's the Holy of Holies we can never enter into, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple broke in half or was ripped in half signifying that now, through the blood of Jesus, we can enter His presence. Now, by, by Jesus, by what He's done on the cross for us, we can step into His holy presence. Now, that doesn't mean that we step into His presence laughing and, and making jokes, and it doesn't mean that we step into His presence and, and, with irreverence. No, but with thankfulness. The fear of God is not to, it's not the fear of the enemy. It, it, the, boy, the best way I can describe it, um, I started to, to bike uh, with bikes that are rented because I don't want to do that toward the Bellevue just because I don't wear really tight stuff. Uh, but <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry, Pastor, I just, <laughs> I just can't, I can't. Oh. But if you ever rode your bike and a truck passed by you, you know really quick like you, what reverence is. When you're, like, you're, you're riding your bike and this truck, this, this semi that has 18 wheels and it, it weighs tons. If it passes by you and you're just doing this, like you, like you know, like imagine if I just pulled it right in front of the truck. I'm like, you can't. You'll be toast. Right, so every single time I ride the bike, I'm just like doing this and watching for cars. Why? Because I understand they're bigger. But there's nothing in comparison to who God is. So fearing God, understanding His holy, I mean, understanding His holy presence, understanding coming to Him. The Apostle Paul described it as fear and trembling. 
Kind of like me with my bike. You wouldn't go in front of a train and be like, yeah, you can, you can stop now. I got about three feet in front of you. You can't. You'll be run over. So understand who we're talking about. So, so on one hand, you have this transcendence, but then on the other hand, you have imminence. Jesus came and took all that glory, like I told you about the shoe thing, right? And fit it somehow. I don't understand how do you take all that glory and then you become a baby. Have you seen a baby before? They're not exactly powerful. All they eat is, I mean, all they do is eat, sleep, and poop. That's all they do. You know, it, this is, and Jesus became like one of us, a helpless baby, and decided to walk amongst us. All that glory took on humanity. I love this, this, um, this play. I don't remember exactly who is it by, but this guy is walking through the barn, and, and there's this dove that keeps on hitting the glass, and he's getting all bloodied up, and and, 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 and this guy's trying to get this dove out and he's constantly chasing this dove and, and he steps on a couple of rakes and then whacks himself in the face and, and he's just like, I, I can't tell this dove that, that all they have to do is just fly lower and go through the door. If I could just become a dove, that's what Jesus has done for us. While we're trying to figure out our own lives, when we're trying to like, and we're getting all bloodied up, Jesus took a form like us and dwelt amongst us. And he showed us, right, how to live. But more importantly, he opened up for us a way to step in God's holy presence. Through his blood, we get to step into his presence. Now, now <laughs> the amazing thing about this is that you can step in his presence, but now you're covered. And now you are justified. And this word, I know it's big, but like justify means just as I've never sinned because Jesus paid for my sin. And this is what, this happens at the cross. The moment you became a Christian, you took on, you know, his blanket that covers you and his righteousness covered you and now you can step into his presence. So that's kind of like the first process, but the moment you become a a, a, a Christian, it doesn't stop there. You're starting a new process called sanctification, where we're, this is where we get also our word, the saints from. It's the same root word, sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification is killing what's of the world inside of us and embracing what's of God, right? Sanctification is to become more like Jesus and less like the world. Sanctification is the constantly dying to the old man and embracing the new way in Christ. That is the process of sanctification. Now, a lot of people think things like, okay, they're, they're, they, they emphasize to separate because holy, actually, the word holy means to cut, to separate, to be different. Now, a lot of people do a pretty good job on saying, oh, I just don't smoke. I'm a Christian. I don't drink. You know, I don't, I don't, what, what are the other big sins apparently um, are there, right? Like we define our Christian walk by the things we stay away from. Is yoga a sin? By the way, you shouldn't do it, but I'm joking. <laughs> I, I'm actually not joking, but we'll have a whole sermon on that. Um, 
but we, we, we say that kind of stuff. Is drinking sin? Is yoga a sin? Is this? Because I just want to see, okay, do I need to separate myself that f- from that? But see, that's just half of the battle. Separating yourself is half of the battle, but then you have to dedicate yourself unto the Lord. There's this powerful story in the Old Testament where Daniel um, is called before the king because the king stole the cups from, from the Holy of Holies. And as he's parting with these cups, there's this hand comes and writes on the wall and says, look, your time is, is expiring here, buddy. Daniel has to interpret this. What happened there is the cups were dedicated unto God in the Holy of Holies were brought for people to defile them. And God said, because of that, you can do, you know, you can do whatever you want to do, but the moment you mess with my vessels... That's a problem. We are called to not just to separate ourselves from the world, but to dedicate ourselves unto Christ and to His calling and to become like Him daily. Look at this. God's, you know, uh, call for us is to be holy. 1 Peter 14 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were in your, uh, yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One, who called you, be holy yourself also in all of your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy because I am holy. It's also God's will for your life to be holy. You know, there's, there's a passage in Romans 28, 29 says that God has called us, right? He says he works in all things, God works for our good and to be according to his purpose or you know, to walk according to his purpose. And the next verse talks about that the purpose is to be in the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And then in, in this passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, says this, for this is the will of God. For this is the will of God. You thought working in, at some company is the will of God. No, regardless where you work, the will of God is your sanctification. You to be in the process of constantly becoming more like Jesus day by, day by day. That's why Apostle Paul, when he refers to the church, talks about how you are the saints. If you have made a decision to follow Christ, now you can't just make a profession of faith and you're, you, you live like a d- the devil. You can't just make a decision and not follow through. Because if you made a decision and you don't follow through, if your faith does not, you know, I don't want to get into the whole debate about can you lose your salvation. What I can tell you is that your faith does not deliver you. You was never real to begin with. If your faith does not last till the end, you was never real to begin with. So you can't just make a profession of faith and live like the rest of the world thinking I'm saved because when I was a kid, when I was 16, I asked Jesus in my heart. That is not what the Bible teaches. If you take it out of the context, you can justify it, right? So he goes on to say, First Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother, uh, brother in the matter of, because of the Lord is the avenger in all things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called you 
or called us rather, from the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God's will for your life is to be holy and to walk in sanctification. This process of constantly dying to your old self and embracing the new person who you are in Christ and becoming like Christ, Christ every day. And here's the crazy instruction that I came across and I had to really pause and really think about this because I don't think it's preached enough and we need to think about it, beloved. It says, Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with, without which no one will see the Lord. Let me read you from ESV translation. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you catch that? Without holiness, you don't get to see the Lord. That is, that is crazy to think about. So shouldn't it be the greatest pursuit of our life? Shouldn't we stop asking if we are happy or sad or depressed or any of those things? Should we ask, are we pursuing holiness instead? Do I think I'm holier than thou? I don't think so. But God has called us to holiness, and there's nothing wrong with that. Actually, God instructs us to be holy. I love this, this quote by Oswald Chambers. He says, holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of man. So let me ask you this. Did you get into your marriage because you thought that's going to make you happy or that it's going to make you holy? In all your pursuits, be your business or be it your call, in everything that you do, are you asking, is this going to make me happy? Or are you asking, is this going to make me holy? It changes, doesn't it, the way we look at things. Is this sinful? Maybe the question we should ask is not what's wrong with this, but what's right with this? Does this get me closer to Christ or farther away? That's the question we should be asking. Are we pursuing holiness, church? Are we pursuing holiness? Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the last thing that I want to mention, you know, when it comes to Scripture, this passage I want to bring from Romans 12, 1 and 4 says this, this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Apostle Paul urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifice. Problem with living sacrifices, they have a tendency to crawl off the altar. You have something that's dead on the altar, it just stays there. Maybe in your call towards sanctification and holiness, you've encountered some pushback 
You've encountered some pushback when it comes to your old ways of doing things. And the Lord this morning is asking you to die to that and to present your bodies as living sacrifice that is acceptable to God, that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It goes on to say, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you start? By renewing your mind. How do you renew your mind? By taking in His Word. Changing the way you think. So many times in our church we say such things that are so nonsense. Imagine if you got out of here and you're like, hey, the preacher today, his name is Slavik. He's a six, seven foot black guy. And the guy's like, no, 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 I remember he was actually of Asian descent and he's actually five foot. And you come out like, you're both right as long as you believe it in your heart. What? No, there's a true nature to who I am as a person. I'm neither of those. And we say things like, oh, you can believe whatever you want to believe about God because, because as long as you believe in your heart, you're fine. No, there's a true nature of who God is, and it's here. It's described here. We don't go around defining who God is. We don't go around defining what holiness is. He's already done that for us. But again, my point this morning is not to make you even feel even more guilty. I'm trying to tell you is this amazing God that we worship every single Sunday morning. This amazing God that created the galaxies became like one of us and He is here. He is there in your depression. He is there in your suffering. He's there when, when he, you have a death in the family. And this morning, he is in this place, and I don't know how you came in, but I want to give you a chance to say, Lord, I, I maybe I said a whole bunch of things that kind of you're still processing. Listen, if you made a decision to follow after Christ and you're dwelt in by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will guide you in this. He will convict you of your sin. He'll also bring healing and restoration. The good news is not that we should feel guilty about our sin. That is part of the process. The good news is that we have a hope that transcends this life. The good news is that we know how it all ends here. And we don't have to go around trying to squeeze every single pleasure and ask if we're happy or not out of this life because life continues after death and death is just a transition. And we know who is all powerful. We know who stands the test of time. Kings and, and, and political governments, they might rise up and fall, but Christ reigns.
Thank you for listening to Eternal Stance. My hope is that these messages will help you to live in light of eternity. If this podcast is a blessing to you, would you share with other people? Thank you.